Uh, we're going to be starting a brand new series in Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open it up about halfway through the first book of the New Testament. is a book called Matthew, uh, and that's where we will be today. It's hanging out in that book. And we're starting off, uh, I want to take the next four weeks of this Advent season to look at Christmas, its events, and how it falls in the context of the greater story. Um, and to do that, we're going to be just doing a few different things together as a community, but one of them is to spend our Sunday teaching times centered in on Matthew's telling of the good news events. And so today is a stimulating uh, text. It's Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and you'll notice that there's a lot of names in there which aren't the most exciting things that you've probably ever done in your life, uh, and that's all right. But, but here's what I want to start us out, is to have you guys turn uh, towards each other and answer a question. And so I'm going to give you a pre, that way uh, those of you that are introverts can prepare yourselves, because you've got about two minutes of conversation with people around you coming up in just a second. Uh, and it's going to delve some of the deepest, rawest parts of your own story. And so we just jump right in here at Missio. And so what I want you to do is uh, think through, what is your favorite first scene of a movie? And this reveals so much about you. So, uh, which is your favorite first scene of a movie? So think back to all the movies that you've seen. Uh, the cartoons, it could be the first time that this movie comes on. You see the opening scene, and you're like, yes, it's on. I'm going to give you a second, like 15 of them. I'm really generous today. 15 whole seconds to think of what is one of the great opening scenes of a movie. Quietly reflect on it. And now would you turn towards a few people around you and share with each other, one of the great opening scenes of a movie is this one. And we're not throwing shade at each other, so it can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, just turn towards each other. One of the great opening scenes of a movie is what? You got like two minutes. So ready, set, go. Five, four, three, two, one. I'm going to regret this, and I know it. Uh, if you're a parent, you do this sometimes, right? Where you're like, I know I'm about to regret what I'm about to do. Uh, but for the sake of everyone in your family, you do it anyway. Uh, maybe it's a road trip. Maybe it's a trip to Disney. Maybe it's letting people just randomly share their favorite opening scene of a movie. But we're going to dive in and ha have a few of them. Uh, throw your hand up. If you've got a favorite scene you want to do, and we'll go quickly. Brooks. For all the Star Wars fans out there, the best star shooting at the Rebel ship. Anybody else have a Star Wars reference in your... Yeah, okay, I knew it would happen. All right, go ahead. Uh, Indiana Jones. Ooh, which one? Uh, the Last Crusade. Okay. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Just brought back, weren't you? <laughs> we're going to let Brandon have a moment, and then we're going to pull everybody back. What else did you have? Yes. The Godfather's opening scene. It's all about the same church stuff, right? Yeah, you guys are cool. Yeah, the opening scene. Yes, Hannah. Uh, the opening graphic part that's absolutely terrifying. 
the opening Jurassic Park, absolutely terrifying. And Helga? Shrek. Shrek the first one. Amen. And the quiet corner, we need at least one. The sound of music. Mmm. Lovely. I love it. With the sound of music. Go on, you get after it. Today, uh, we're starting off two things, and I wanted to start here because uh, the Christmas story is probably familiar for a lot of us. And what I would hate to see happen, what I would absolutely hate to see happen is the familiarity with the story leads us or lulls us into an apathy about the amazing events that are about to take place. Like, like I would hate for us to enter in and be like, oh, Christmas, yeah, right, angels, sheep, shepherd, six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus rocking out in the manger, you know, like that sort of thing, silent night, we sang a song, we're good to go, is it January yet? I got some shopping to do. I would hate for us to miss the beauty and the majesty and the immensity of what we are invited into this season to consider afresh what happens when the kingdom of God invades the world where we live. When God himself acts in a way that nobody saw coming, nobody was prepared for, nobody could have even imagined in their wildest imagination, even though they had all these promises leading up to it. It was mind-blowing. And we're going to start that today, and I want us to enter it in and just kind of cannonball in, like all in, enjoying the wonder and the depth of this story. And so we're starting the season of Advent. We're also starting a year-long journey through the book of Matthew. And so our Sundays for most of 2024 uh, will be around the teachings and the life and the trainings and the equipping and the disciple-making and the joy and the doubt and the concern and the clash of powers and the victory of Jesus that happens in the book of Matthew. And and so today's going to be setting both those up, and I'm aware that as we do that, we're going to dive into today's text, and it's going to be largely boring. And I can say that from up front. My brother's here visiting from Hawaii, and I said, you want some coffee? He's like, why? Is the guy that's speaking boring? And I was like, yeah, he's the worst. You're going to really need it. We're going to spend almost the entire time I'm going to read, reading names that you're going to giggle I'm going to read. You will know some of them. You won't know others of them. And so I want to say this as we get into it. Uh, Consider this. Each name read is a story. It's a life full of doubt and faith and concern and sorrow and tragedy and wonder and faithfulness and faithlessness and mistakes and sin and disease and corruption and renewal and experiencing God. Each of these, whether it's two syllables or 27, as some of them seem to linger for, capture a real moment in history where a real woman or man was engaging with life in God's world, waiting for the day when the end of the story would break in. And so, without any further ado, I'm going to read the text and then give us three implications from it. The book that's attributed to Matthew starts this way. 
Uh, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is my only Star Wars reference. Imagine with me that this is the words going, I don't even know what they said because I only saw Star Wars once and it was like last year. Uh, But those words, when they go up on the screen and start doing that lovely scrolling function, you guys know what I'm in a galaxy far, far away? Amen. (laughs) And Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, But no, when when that starts going, people that love Star Wars get straight up giddy. They, and he's not the only one. They start like shaking in anticipation, even though they have it all memorized. In some small way, if at all possible, put your brain in that mode as you read these names. This is ticking off human history until we get to the promised one. And he just gave us that spoiler alert. This is how we get to Jesus. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zariah, the mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab, there's the dab. Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father to Obed, whose mother was Ruth. If you remember, she's got her own book in the Bible as well that maybe some of these will bring back memories of stories you've heard before. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Uh, Just a pause in there to give you a break. What the author has done is just taken us through Abraham, the start of the nation of Israel, the development of the kingdom under David, the separation of the nations of Judah and Israel as the north and the south kingdoms would spread. He's taking you through, showing you this is the lineage that this one who this book is about is pointing to, all the way through to the exile in Babylon. And then we're going to get to the most recent history for them. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Sheetel, Sheetel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, this started getting to Star Wars real quick, didn't it? Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Imagine the tingling because people start to recognize, I might not have known all those other people, but this guy I do know. I do know Joseph. And Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Take a collective breath. 
That was a lot of names. In those names, what we will often miss is that there is some of the most profound storytelling weaving together thousands of years of human history so that you know who in the world Jesus even is. Uh, remember that the people who are reading this would have been able to figure out, is this story legit? The way Matthew puts the lineage together, he's doing it more theological, uh, not necessarily hitting every person in the story. Uh, that's not the total number of generations from Abraham all the way through, but the way that he's woven the story together is to show this is the line that Jesus came from. You can go back and do your research. Uh, these are events that took place. This is not made up. This is not fiction. You can do the work, the recon, and follow through. And so I have three things that I, I want to show us uh, about this, and each one will just talk about the Christmas story. Because before we get to the birth in the manger, I want us to be on the same page even as we approach Matthew over the next year. Uh, the first thing, Christmas events are news, not advice. Uh, the Christmas news that Jesus is born, a king has come, uh, he has come to Bethlehem, he's been born in a manger, there's a star in the sky. All of those events that we're going to get to, they are events that took place, not advice to be observed. And that makes a really big difference. Uh, the difference between news and advice are a few different things. Uh, the first thing, though, is just that advice is what you should do, news is what has been done. And when it comes to the gospel, this makes a, a big, big deal, right? When it comes to Jesus, he's not here to offer advice. And even as we think about the story and the stories of Jesus, they aren't advice for how we ought to live primarily. The account of Matthew is not just, here's some suggestions that you may or may not want to take that will help you on your way as you live your life. That's advice, right? Like, don't swim 30 minutes after eating. That's advice. Turns out it wasn't actually true. Uh, you don't have to not do that. You don't actually sink to the bottom of the pool, right? But somebody gave that advice, and then you can do what you want with it. News, though, is something that has taken place. When news is reported properly, there are events that have taken place, and somebody tells you about them. Uh, there's things that have been accomplished, whether on the other side of the world uh, whether it's on the other side of your city, whether it's in your neighborhood, uh, whether it's in your family's life. Uh, that family text thread is probably a blend of both of these, uh, advice and news. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But they're meant to tell you, here's what's been accomplished. The Christianity that we believe, right? the gospel that we believe is primarily events that have been accomplished, not advice on how you ought to live. And Matthew's going to write an account that helps to keep that straight. Uh, secondly, advice is seen as your private opinion that you're politely offering, or not so politely offering, I guess, to others. We probably have both sorts of people in our lives. News, though, is public truth. So when it comes to uh, the gospel, when it comes to the events of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, what Matthew is inviting with all these names is to say, you can go check it out. Like, like Mary's probably still around. Joseph might still be around. At least their other kids are still around. Go ask and track their lineage. This man who died and rose again came from somewhere, and you can track his lineage back to King David, which should be like a hyperlink in your brain, thinking through all the ways that King David was promised to have a, a successor on the throne forever. 
And then Abraham, who was the father of many nations, and through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So when you hear those names, it's meant to draw you in to that story. But to remember that these are events that are secure, that you can plant your feet on, and it's public truth, not just private opinion, which is very different than how the gospel is presented in almost every arena, including some churches. Sometimes the gospel is presented as in, if you would choose to believe it, here's what Jesus has done for you. That's not the gospel. The, the gospel are the events that have been accomplished, that are cemented in history, that you can plant your feet in, that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and he rose again. And out of that, we respond. Out of that, we react and we figure out how do we live life in light of that. But those events are secure. And so the other way for us just to look at that, advice is seen as the private opinion. News is public truth that we respond to. We have something that we do with that public truth. Uh, it was probably a little bit over a month ago that I got a call from a pastor, actually a banner church, which is here in Mesa. He was driving his motorcycle along, and he said, hey, Kevin, are you all right? Caden and I were playing football, and I thought maybe he like, drove by and saw like, Caden like, burning me or something. I was like, what's going on? Like, I am all right. I'm playing football. I'm doing really good. And he goes, all right, cool. I just saw a SWAT truck unload everybody out at your building, so I wanted to make sure you were okay. So right out front of the street here, he'd been driving by on his motorcycle, had seen the SWAT truck open up its back doors, everybody come rolling out and coming to the door on Living Messiah's side. And I was like, I'm good. That's kind of weird, though. He's like, yeah, I don't know what it is. Just thought I'd let you know. And so he hung up, and then two minutes later, Josh Duran calls me. And he's like, hey, dude, uh, Jason, who owns CiderCore with Josh, they both own that business over there. He said, Jason just called and said that SWAT blocked off the street, and they're all rolling through uh, right into your building. You heading over there? And I was because uh, I had heard that news that SWAT was coming into the door. I didn't know the full context of what was taking place, uh, but I was aware that they'd have to clear the whole building, and I didn't want to clean up a bunch of broken glass. Um, so regardless of what the situation was, I knew it affected me, and I had to make a response in light of it. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit at length with somebody had called in on a Saturday was a bomb scare on our neighbors when they were present in the building uh, in order to get them out because uh, they had living Messiah in their name and they thought they were a Jewish church and so they were trying to clear them out of their space and disrupt their worship service and so they were able to clear the whole building uh, and they were able to make sure that there wasn't then a threat other beyond the verbal one that was given um, and so I know that's a serious example that's not like one of the funny ones like Shrek or Star Wars. But, but I want to show the, the serious side of it to say, like, when that news was said, I had something I had to do with it. When the people that were in the building heard the news that, hey, there was a threat made, they had to choose to do something with that event. It didn't shape the fact that the events had taken place. Whether or not I wanted to believe that the events had taken place, whether or not I wanted to believe that SWAT was currently clearing our building, didn't really matter. They were. They were events taking place. I then had to do something in response to it. And that's what news does. Their events accomplished that demand a response. And now your response could be to ignore it. That's your choice. Your response could be to investigate it. Your response could be to believe it. But our responses don't change 
the actual reality of the events. That's what the gospel is. Events accomplished of a mighty victory that Jesus has won, that we are invited to participate in now until the day when he finally comes and fully sets up his kingdom. The claim of the gospel is public truth that anyone can respond to. So the first thing, the events of the Christmas story, they're historical. They're trustworthy. Uh, the second thing to look at, these events and what we learn through these names is that Christmas is the center of a story. It doesn't stand alone. Uh, Matthew's making sure that he tells these young disciples who were following after Jesus, these small little house churches that were getting set up, these groups of disciple makers who were figuring out how do we tell the rest of the known world what Jesus is like and what his kingdom was. As he's setting that up, he wants them to know that this is part of the ongoing story of God's redemption. Uh, this story of Jesus doesn't stand alone. Matthew is setting out to not only tell the story of Jesus, but also the entire story of God. The story of Jesus is a continuation and a fulfillment of the story that he gives little previews of all along when he gave those names. The identity and the mission of Jesus can only be understood if we look at the larger context of the story of God that the Bible tells. Uh, when we just take Jesus and we throw him into any other story that we want, it gets kind of funky. Like, like we can easily, especially around this time, turn Jesus into the, the cosmic Santa Claus, right? Like he's the, he's the nice, jolly one who wants you to love one another, to behave, and if you do so, he'll bless your life. It sounds more like Santa than it does the God of the Bible, but we can easily do that if we don't have anything connected to the rest of the story. Uh, we can turn Jesus into this rule-making machine who wanted to rule, ruin everybody's life. Like he just came in and gave rules and told everybody what they could and couldn't do. It's like but when you read the gospel and when you look at God's plan, it was always for the flourishing of humanity in ways that led to life and joy and wholeness. But if you don't have the rest of the story, you're left to wonder and kind of choose your own adventure when it comes to Jesus. And what Matthew's doing is saying, no, 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 you have to recognize that the story of Jesus finds itself within a larger story. And that whole story only makes sense if you have Jesus in it. And Jesus only makes sense if you look at him in light of the whole story. So we use these simple symbols to tell the story. And they're all across the bear t-shirts if you want to get one from Michael's Etsy shop. Um, they tell the story going across. Each of these images tells an act of the story of God. We were trying to figure out how do we make what's, this Bible's a big book, isn't it? Let's be honest. The, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot of details going on. Some of the names may be a little hard to pronounce. Maybe. You might have seen that today. And, and so rather than just saying like, well, then let's not pay attention. Let's only go to the parts that we can see or understand or have little short snippets. How do we understand the Bible as a whole? And these were the symbols that we came up with to tell through that. And each one tells an act of the story of God. And I want to do this in light of the words even that Matthew used earlier of Emmanuel, God with us. Each act of the story is about God's pursuit to be with his people. And so in the first act of the story, creation, this is Genesis 1 and 2 in your Bible if you have one. 
In this act of the story, we see God creates everything good, right, and beautiful. Uh, The world, the galaxy, the stars, all the things, all the matter. He makes it all. And in the center of the garden, he places that tree, right? The one where human beings could decide right and wrong for themselves or the tree of life right next to it. And then he puts human beings in that garden. And those human beings are little image bearers. Bearers who are meant to reflect God's glory and to continue to cultivate all the hidden potentials of his creation uh, and expand that kingdom, that temple, that space out throughout the entire world. And they were told they could eat of anything in the garden, just not that one tree, which is the one where they would choose whether it was right and wrong for themselves. And what we learn is that it takes all of a chapter in your Bible, I don't know how long it was, for Adam and Eve, those first humans, to not do what they were called to do, to not cultivate the hidden potentials, to not reflect God's glory, but for themselves to decide, uh, we want to choose what's right. And so they take that fruit and they eat it. And immediately when they do, the relationship with God is fractured. What was peace and shalom and wholeness, where God would come in the cool of the day and he'd walk with them, teaching them the best possible way to live, where he would come alongside of them and say, this is my world, what do you want to know about it? And he'd enjoy being in their presence, and they had nothing blocking them. As soon as they ate that fruit, as soon as they rebelled against God, Genesis 3 through 11 tells the story of that rebellion And the way that it put a fracture and a divide between God and humanity, humanity and themselves, humanity and creation, humanity and each other. And so if your experience in the world wasn't quite what you feel like it was meant to be, where you experienced brokenness, loss, sickness, loneliness, disease, maybe even death this week, all of that came from this moment when human beings rebelled against God. But God doesn't leave the world without hope. He makes a promise in the garden that one day there would be one who is born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head, the one who had tricked them into sinning, the one who had led them into that, the one who had tempted them. He would crush his head even though that serpent would bite at his heel. And we're left wondering how will that take place? If you've ever read through Genesis, you read uh, every so many chapters, there's another list of names which tracks the story, and you're like, all right, is that Messiah coming? Is that Messiah coming? Is that Messiah coming? And he's not there yet. And it comes to a man named Abraham. That third act of the story, this third arrow, is the act of promise where God comes to a wandering nomad who has no kids and tells him out of him he will make a great nation through whom all the nations in the world will be blessed. And it's a really, really long story, but what I want us to see for today is that that's the story that so much of Jesus' life comes out of. That's where Matthew started his genealogy to tell the story of this is who Jesus is. He started with Abraham. And tracking through that story, we recognize that God's heart was always to be with his people, and his people were always meant to be a light to the nations. They were never just existing for themselves. In fact, the way that they would show other nations how good God was uh, wasn't even by going out to them, but it was following the law that God had set up for them to live their lives by. And that as other nations looked in and saw God's presence with his people through the temple and saw the lifestyle that that motivated and saw the way that a law given by God was good for humanity, they would lean in and want the same thing. Long story short, Israel fails miserably at that calling. 
In fact, it gets to the place where God goes silent for 400 years. The pages of scripture don't record any writings during that time. And humanity is left in that tension of, God, you said you would make things right. God, you said you would deliver. God, you said you would send a king who would come and restore and renew and make all things good again. You said that somebody would come out of the line of David from Abraham. When will that happen? And that's when the answer to that question comes in Matthew's first words, reading, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the deliverer, the promised one, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you see why that's kind of a big deal? This is the Bible coming to a climax to recognize that the hero, the rescuer, the restorer was here. And what I want us to be able to enter into and to recognize that, that these events then have happened. And it's up to us to respond. Leslie Newbegin says, the gospel is not just an illustration or even the best illustration of an idea. It's the story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly changed. He's saying these are events that have been accomplished. This is the security of your hope. This is the foundation of your love. This is what prompts out explosive joy that you have had an experience with the Messiah yourself. And Matthew wants us to see that these are real events. They actually took place, and they take place as part of a bigger story. The last thing about the message of Christmas that I want us to see is that it's for all people. The message of Christmas is for all people. The Jesus who was sent does not exist for a select group of people who were good enough to be able to get it. When you look at the list of people involved in the story as Matthew write it down, he did not write it down in a flattering way. And so in medieval times, if you wanted to be a knight, you had to have your lineage uh, restored, you had to have your lineage marked to be able to get to where you wanted to go, and you had to show that there was no pollution in your lineage. Uh, when you go back even to Jesus' time, people's lineage or their background or the people that they would cite uh, wasn't their work experience or their degrees because you didn't have much of those, but it was who your father was, who your father's father was, who your father's father father was. And as you saw, they tracked that back pretty meticulously. And that was like your resume that you submitted uh, when it came to who you were going to be in society. And so when they came to submitting this resume, uh, when Matthew writes this out, he doesn't write it down in the most flattering way at all. Uh, just some of the names that are included in this. Uh, Abraham is kind of a given. That's where he starts, and that's kind of like you read that when you're like, clearly, good for you. You called Abraham. All of us call Abraham our father if we're Israelites. Uh, that's what he would, they would be thinking. We, we all have Abraham, but that's a good starting point. Uh, that's the one through whom the blessing was going to flow. Great first one. Let's see what else you got. The inclusion of the five women on the list uh, culturally at that time did absolutely nothing to show off the, who Jesus was in any kind of flattering way. But Matthew includes them in there on purpose to say, no, 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 there's these, there's these people that are super meaningful to the story, and they were women, and that matters. And so there's five of those listed in there in a lineage that usually didn't include any. 
But then the women that he included, out of all five of them, all of them had sexually suspect pasts, including his mother, who everybody was like, sure thing, you and Joseph didn't do anything, and now you're pregnant. And then going back, even Tamar, that woman, uh, she was a Gentile woman. She wasn't part of, she wasn't an Israelite, and she had tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her. It's a wild story uh, because he was withholding blessing, and it's a crazy story. But it's kind of a suspect pass, and that's not exactly people are like, oh, throw her on the list. Uh, looking at Rahab, she was also a Canaanite prostitute, but she was the one that God used, if you remember, when they're coming into the conquest of the land to deliver Joshua and the other spies so that they could actually accomplish as God's purposes in the land. She trusted God rather than uh, trusting the pressure of the culture around her, and it stood as an example of the story, but an unlikely one. Boaz and Ruth, uh, their story, depending on where it gets preached, can be kind of suspect or really, really beautiful. I think it's kind of both. Uh, probably like most of our stories. But Boaz served this role in being a kinsman redeemer for Ruth to allow her to flourish in a land that was not her own. And Jesus is claiming, these are my people. Yes, there are kings on the list. Yes, David is on the list. Yes, Solomon is on the list. And we know those names, and those are important because they show the direction and the trajectory of the story. But there's also other names on there that would be ethnic outsiders, that would be uh, outsiders based on their moral choices, that would be outsiders based on their gender, that would be outsiders based on the places where they came from or who their parents were. And what we're seeing from Matthew is a statement that is bold, that the kingdom of God is for anyone who receives it. So starting on page one of his book, and he will teach that as we get into the chapters later, by the very names he selects, he says, this is not about pedigree that exists outside of coming to God himself for rescue and redemption. And whatever your past, there is a place for you at the table if you will come in. And that's really good news at Christmas. That's a lot of names. It's a lot of facts. Uh, let me just pull it back to those That's three things. One, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The message of Christmas is good news, events accomplished, something has happened, not just advice and suggestions for us. And so we as a community, we as a people, we as humans have to do something with that. The second, that the Christmas events are the center of a story. And that story moves past the life and birth of Jesus onto his death, onto his resurrection, onto the sending of the Spirit, which sends out the church, and that continues on to the one day when Jesus restores to make all things new. But this part about Jesus and his life and his, is right there in the middle in that act of redemption. But we have to remember that's the story. When we look at who is Jesus, we have to look at his identity and his mission because that informs our identity and our mission as well. And then lastly, this is for everyone. This isn't just for a select group of people to hear this good news. The announcement is in Luke, right? It's good news of great joy for all people. And so here's where I wanna land us today. With that immensity and with that beauty and with that surging current leading us toward the restoration of all things, uh, for us to consider afresh as followers of Jesus or people who are curious and just here maybe for the first time or leaning in saying, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing, but I'm trying to figure it out. I want us to take a moment and just consider what practices will keep you in the story this Advent. 
Uh, what practices can you put into your life that will help you to remember these good news events that are public truth? Uh, what can we do that will keep us in the rhythm of remembering that Jesus is in this story and I'm in this story? There's a list of names that continues on from Jesus to us sitting here today of spiritual parents who have passed on the faith from one generation to another. If the story kept going, we could get to your name as part of this story after Jesus. That's wild, right? But what will we do to help us remember to stay in that? And then what practices will we implement that remind us that this story isn't just for us or our own families, but it's literally for the nations. It's for others. Others have yet to experience the good news in a season that's going to look to stretch you and distract you and disorient you like few others. That's totally what Jesus came to set up by anyway, right? Like that's, that's probably exactly what he wanted from the month of December for us. I would just encourage you to consider what are some countercultural practices that you can look at that will keep you in that even as we look into the next season. Three that I have for you, and then you're welcome to come up with your own as well. Uh, one is to utilize a tool that we have called an examine, which is a daily reflection on your day through the lens of those six acts that I just talked about. It's a prayer practice that's been used by people of God for many years that helps to keep us reminded of God's presence with us throughout our entire day. We've got copies in the back. If you want one, they're not, you don't have to pay for them. It's not that sort of thing. If those ones disappear, we'll have more next week. But I would encourage you, if you don't have one, to take one of those and practice it over the next 30 days and see if you're able to pay more attention to God being with you than you were before just because you stop and reflect. A simple practice of asking, God, where did I see your presence today and where did I experience distance where I wasn't aware of it? Asking both those questions can be widely orienting for us. That's one practice. A second practice I would give you is to gather regularly. It doesn't just mean on Sundays, though this is important, but gather with other believers to be reminded of the story, to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded that the kingdom of God is actually here, and that's not an idea or an ideal, but it's reality. Because our vocations often want to make us doubt that. Our experience in the world can sometimes make us doubt that. Our driving down the 60 can really make us doubt that. Like, God, are you here? What is going on? Our parenting, our experiences in our marriages, our experiences within our own souls, God, are you really here? Sometimes we need the outside reminder from others saying, yes, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is here with us. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. And so gathering regularly is meant to do that for one another. And the last thing that I would give us to take out this week would be celebrating. Uh, What if we as Missio Dei communities and friends who are gathered here together uh, asked a question, what is a celebration tradition that we can intentionally do to remind us of the goodness of Jesus in this season? Like what if, and some of you do this as families and it's beautiful, when you gather, share those things with others. But what are the practices that you can bring into your home, that you can bring into your apartment, that you can bring into your relationships to say, we want to be people who celebrate well. One of the themes that we're going to see all throughout this Christmas story is joy. The fact that Jesus showed up was not boring. The fact that Jesus showed up was not like, huh, all right, what's on the other channel? Like the fact that Jesus showed up was not scroll and get to the next hit. The fact that Jesus showed up was worth orienting all of life around, and it prompted explosive joy. 
Now, that's why Christmas was such a big celebration. Because this is when we remember Jesus actually arrived. And we look forward and say with the same certainty he came the first time, he will return again. And we lean in with hope towards that day. So I'd encourage you, what are patterns of celebrating that you're not just taking from different cultural prompts, but that you implement in your own homes or settings or friend groups? That's something accessible to any of us, not just a few of us. And then the last practice that we will do together as a church is to come to the table. And so each week we do this, but in Advent I invite us again afresh to consider that the juice that we take represents the blood of a new covenant that Jesus has made that says he will always be with us. Uh, that we remember that he upheld all the demands that were needed so that we could walk in freedom. That what was broken at the rebellion where that relationship between God and humans was broken, that in Jesus' own death and resurrection, he restores and makes possible for us to be healed to be made right and enjoy fellowship with God again. And the beauty of the table, as Paul writes it out, is that it's as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as we remember what Jesus has done, that we proclaim his death and his resurrection until he returns. And this is a practice that we can embody every week to remember that Jesus came once and he will surely return again.